As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Max Verstappen took his third win of the season in Formula One's inaugural Miami Grand Prix. And for the second race in succession, he overtook world championship rival Charles Leclerc to do it. But what happened to Ferrari's challenge, and was F1's newest and glitziest race all about style over substance? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, how have you enjoyed your first trip to Miami? Yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, I've been to America a few times now for, for, for work, Formula One and Formula E. So I've visited Austin, I've visited Long Beach, uh, but this is my first time uh, in this part of the country. And Miami's been awesome, packed in my first baseball game. Went to see some NBA, got to see my beloved Philadelphia 76ers lose uh, in pretty dramatic fashion. Well, I say dramatic fashion, quite pathetic fashion to the Miami Heat, which was awesome. Tried some Cuban food, went, checked out some local eateries and yeah, just uh, really, really enjoyed it. And and the event itself was uh, was pretty spectacular, uh, off track anyway, maybe on track a little bit. Less so, we'll get into that a bit later. But yeah, as a, in, in general, really, really enjoyed it. Miami's been pretty cool. And he didn't even mention beating me at pool. Uh, yeah, the um, the inaugural um, uh, East Hollywood Miami Pool Cup ended in a resounding 3-1 victory for this guy right here. So we're about to talk about a bunch of elite athletes on this podcast, but I count myself in that group after my stellar pool performance the other night. You almost broke a window during it. That's how spectacular it was. And Mark, you've had a similar experience to Scott in Miami, but... Might this be a race that you really do have to be here for to to get the best out of? As an experience, yeah. I mean, it's it's a great place to be. This part of the world, it's um, you know, it, it's the the the, the weather and uh, the, you go down to Miami Marina, the 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 Miami Beach there, and it's just uh, it's lovely and it's just a, a you know the place has got a buzz about it, especially with the um, the the event 
coming here this weekend and had an extra buzz. And yeah, it was um, it was a bit more than just a Grand Prix. It was uh, it was um, I think something that sort of um, like the aspiration of liberty is to have this sort of you know uh, event which tr- sort of transcends just the just the traditional um, following of the sport and uh, it's uh, sort of catering to a a new a newer audience I think um, but at the same time it, I don't think there's anything about it that would alienate the existing audience so I thought it was a great event well, let's get into the race then, Mark. On Saturday, Ferrari locked out the front row, but on Sunday, Red Bull had the edge with Verstappen overtaking Leclerc for the lead on lap nine. So, as per tradition, can you explain how the race was won? Yeah, I think um, at the end of the weekend, we could look back and say that actually the Red Bull was the faster car, but it took all of the weekend for it to um, become apparent because it's still a little bit um, delicate, still a little bit high maintenance. And uh, losing most of Friday uh, track run into various reliability problems meant that Max was on the back foot in qualifying and he just wasn't as dialed into the car as the two Ferrari drivers were into theirs. And um, he was just pushing a little bit too hard um, through turn six, I think it was. And it just got away from him and just ran a bit wide. And that's what um, basically took him out of contention for pole. But I think um, that it, it, it's a small enough difference between the two cars still that um, that was enough to you know to enable Ferrari to lock out the front row. But it it it's got one thing going for it, which has had all year, and it's a very very strong end of straight speed, and uh, that in combination with the Ferraris. Pushing the um, the front right medium tire, working that tire a bit harder than the Red Bull tends to, which is we saw that in Imola as well. Um, that combination just allowed um, Verstappen to to get in front. He dealt with Sainz by turn two, and in a way, it was probably as well that he qualified third rather than second because third was definitely a a better grid slot here than than second. Bit also a bit like Imola actually. And um, yeah, so that was that that prevented Sainz from being uh, a barrier to Leclerc, prevented Ferrari from being able to use Sainz as a barrier. And then um, yeah, he just he just wore Leclerc down. Leclerc's tire began opening up. He, um, Max went through, and that looked to be it. He, he pulled out enough of a gap that he didn't need to worry about any undercut threat. And then. Uh, it was all thrown up at the air a bit by that late safety car, and then he was uh, he had to be defensive because, as the just for the the same reason that the the Ferrari is a bit harder on the front tire, it also warms the front tire up more quickly. So for those first couple of um, post safety car laps, Leclerc was all over him and uh, really brought the race back to life. Uh, but it, by the time DRS was enabled, a couple of laps later. Uh, Max had got his tyres up to temperature and then uh, that was it, straightforward from there. Yeah, and one notable thing during the weekend was Verstappen giving Red Bull a hard time for little procedural errors and bits and pieces that made life difficult for him. He had a little bite of that after the race as well. I think that's poorly attached hydraulic line in FP2 that led to the the problems with him not being able to steer properly and, and, and the brake fire 
Didn't go down very well with him, so felt a bit under pressure, but did manage to turn it around on the Sunday. Now, Scott, as ever, we have questions from the Race Members Club. The first comes from Matt Wyatt, who has a strategy question. He asks, could Ferrari have put Verstappen under more pressure by pitting Leclerc under the safety car? I think Leclerc had enough of a gap to Perez during the VSC to make it work, but might have needed science to let him chase after Max following the restart. I feel like Ferrari missed an opportunity there, as an overtake never looked likely without a tyre offset or a mistake from Max. There is a secondary question there about what tyres Leclerc had left, which I'll answer while you're thinking about that, Scott, because he had no mediums left at all, but he did have a set of fresh hards available as well as some used softs. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. I, I see where Matt's coming from, but because Leclerc didn't have a set of mediums available beyond the fresh ones he started on, uh, he only had new hards and used softs. So Ferrari felt that sticking with the used hard was the best option. It, even a fresh set of softs would have been too risky and the, and, and the warm-up on the hards too difficult. So I actually think Ferrari played it right and Leclerc clearly had enough pace to put pressure on. He just didn't quite have enough. And by doing what they did, Ferrari anchored a double podium. They briefly challenged for the win as well with oh, just what simply looked like being the slightly slower race car. Probably they benefited as well from having Leclerc out there staying on the same set of tyres because he did have a little bit of a chance towards the end. So no bad thing at all. Now, Mark, we also have some questions about the relative strengths and the development paths of the Ferrari and the Red Bull. I'm going to put two questions together for you to ponder. Sander van Holten asks if Ferrari is likely to solve its lack of top speed without compromising downforce levels, while Oscar Robledo asks if the Red Bull design philosophy with a little downforce sacrifice for straight line speed will be optimal for the forthcoming races, or is Ferrari's approach the better one? It's going to depend on the track, and I, I don't think that... Um you, 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 the, the, quite right. The pattern that you see it, it, that 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 is how it is. But I think that's just defined by the the concept of the the cars. I don't think it's a Red Bull choosing to go light. You know, in terms of setup, I don't think it's a setup choice as they come into a weekend. I think it's a concept, a car concept choice, and that's just how it's going to play out. If you run the car in the most efficient manner on the Red Bull, it's got relatively little wing. On the Ferrari, it's got quite a lot of wing. And that's just how each of those cars works best. And so that is what you're going to see. And so, yes, that does tend to make the Red Bull a bit more raceable, um, even though it, it, it will depend on the track layout, whether it's ultimately faster over a lap than a Ferrari. That, that's as they stand at the moment. But having said that, I do think in the last couple of races, Red Bull do seem to be chipping away. Um, uh, on on the development front, and um, it was certainly a concern that Matteo Benotto was expressing after the race. He's think he's he's a little bit concerned that they're putting performance on that car, um, and uh, he's very he's very aware that they need to get some performance on their own car, and is hopeful that it will be in, at Barcelona. But um, yeah, this is the first time we've seen. The Red Bull was not losing out on acceleration to the Ferrari, uh, so uh, perhaps that weight savings um, playing a part in that. And um, yeah, it's a, it still retained its stronger end of straight speed and wasn't losing out on acceleration. So I think overall that made it the stronger car. And of course, we might see a little bit of a change in the balance of power next race at Barcelona because Barcelona is always a good place for upgrades, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. And it's also um, places a lot of emphasis on the sort of corners that the Ferrari is very good at. So, um, yeah, let's, let's, let's just see. But um, I think 
you know, looking back in hindsight, uh, the Miami track did suit the Red Bull, but the Red Bull is coming on. It is, um, I think, being developed quite well. Yeah, let's move into Division 2, as it were, for the, for the front-running battle, Scott. It did seem we might be preparing Carlos Sainz's sympathy corner at one stage in the weekend after he had his crash on Friday, but he recovered well, ended up finishing third. Do you think he's at least steadied the ship now? Yeah, I think so. I think he did a decent job. Um, he trailed Leclerc in qualifying. The, the whole way through, actually, he looked a chunk away, but then he pulled it together when it mattered in Q3. It actually looked like he might grab pole at one point. He was on a good lap, but as the lap progressed, Leclerc just edged further and further away. Signs still pipped Verstappen to second, but I did actually wonder if that was a sign of um, Carlos learning from the mistakes he'd made first in Imola in qualifying there and then in practice here and he was just building up a little bit gaining his confidence getting everything together to 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 push when it mattered because it had been it it become clear in the last couple of events that he the limit of that car is not quite where he thought it was so i did wonder if that was a bit deliberate um as for the race he was pretty powerless to stop Verstappen into turn one at the start, but to be fair, he fought as hard as he could without being unfair. His race was pretty clean. A slow pit stop didn't help, but after that, it was looking fine. Um, I thought he was pretty safe in, in third place, obviously helped by the fact that Perez had been slowed uh, by a brief uh, engine issue. Um, then after the safety car at the restart, he had to withstand massive pressure from Perez, who had switched to a, a set of fresh mediums, um, but he did that excellently. He defended brilliantly into the first corner. I I really thought Perez was going to have him on the outside there with a bit more grip, but Sainz did a great job there, judged that really well. And then he just sort of kept him at, at arm's length. He, 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 he just did everything he needed to do. He brought home a podium after a perfectly decent competitive Grand Prix, despite struggling with the combination of feeling sore from his Friday crash and not having done a race distance for about a month. Um, so I think it was a really solid result and probably just what he needed. Yeah, he needed something like that, didn't he? Mark, Chris Parrott from the Race Members Club asks, is Carlos Sainz's championship challenge over? 104 points for Leclerc, 53 for Sainz. Well, I mean, it's it's easy for it to feel like that from the perspective of now, but just five races in, things can happen. But yeah, I think obviously... He's got a he's got a mountain to climb, really. If he if he's to, um, you know, make himself, but uh, get himself in a position where Ferrari can't just automatically, at, you know, halfway point of the season, say, okay, you're now in support role. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be very tough, but it just you know, it just takes a a Leclerc retirement and a Sainz win, for example, and it's, it's it looks a little bit less good. You know, that such things aren't beyond the imagination. So I wouldn't be writing it off, but it I would say it's very, very difficult. Yeah, it's hard, especially with the form very much being with Leclerc. But then again, Science will take some solace from the fact he was actually ahead of Leclerc for quite a big chunk of that qualifying lap, but it only was really decided in Leclerc's favour by that big bit of wheel spin that Science had out of turn 17. So Science kind of desperately trying to hang on there. And ultimately, Scott, Checo Perez, fourth place. You'll be a little bit disappointed with that. You almost got that position off off science, but still another solid result for him, isn't it? That's what he's there to do. Yeah, I think he's um I think he's performing very well. He is pretty much making the 
Red Bull decision for next year a no-brainer, isn't he? I, I don't see how Red Bull or why Red Bull would replace him when he is performing at exactly the level that they've been trying to get a, a second driver to perform at since Daniel Ricciardo left. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's any real issues with Perez's performances uh, at the moment. Maybe there is still a little bit of a question mark on him over, uh, over one lap, but I think that will always be there. The main point is that at the moment, when the cars are nice and finely balanced in terms of the Ferrari versus Red Bull fight, Perez can be counted on. He he is always there or thereabouts. Okay, that qualifying issue probably won't ever disappear, but you don't have any any concern that Perez is going to be you know having to fight his way out of eighth or ninth in in every other Grand Prix or, or something like that. So I think Red Bull are pretty happy with him. Yeah, and his race was made a little bit harder by that brief spell where he did have a bit of an engine problem. I think that was a sensor issue that cost him a little bit of power and it took them a tiny bit of time to sort that out, which inevitably cost him some time in that first stint. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Mark, let's talk Mercedes now. On Friday, the W13 had a new lower downforce rear wing, crucially lower drag as well, modified beam wing and changes to the front wing and end plates with George Russell setting the pace in FP2. Look close to Red Bull and Ferrari on long run pace as well. And yet, come qualifying, Hamilton and Russell were 6th and 12th with Hamilton just over 8 tenths off. Then they took 5th and 6th in the race. So was that just reading too much into Friday or was there something a little bit more interesting going on here? No, they were genuinely quick on Friday. Um, and they, they, for reasons that they really don't understand, um, with almost identical settings to Friday um, in qualifying, they were nowhere. And the track had gripped up a lot. All the other cars sort of found a second a lap from the increased track grip, but all the increased track grip seemed to do the Mercedes was um, trigger it back into the um, the porpoising behaviour and uh, yeah it, it, it seems a very very sensitive threshold whatever is triggering it, um, it all that had changed between Friday and qualifying it was the track with the level of track grip the, the, the car was virtually identical in setup they'd gone to a, a lower ride height in FP3 in between those sessions in on Saturday morning, and that that had triggered oh the car then was in 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 bad shape, and they believed that, lo, fairly logically, I suppose that it was because they'd been a little bit too greedy with the ride height, so they came back up back to where they were um, in time for qualifying, assuming that it would behave like it had on Friday, but it just didn't, and it didn't at any other point in the weekend either. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, that threshold can be triggered by e- even just changes in track grip. Um, uh, so by a mechanism, through a mechanism by which the, the team itself doesn't yet understand. Yeah, still plenty of work to be done 
there. George Russell was saying after the race they need to really understand what happened on Friday in case that might give them a, a bit of an extra direction to understand things. But yeah, still trying to get to the bottom of it properly. To be fair, they never expected the upgrades that they brought to change things completely. They were they were all good tweaks, but they weren't game changers, and that proved to be the case. They're just that little feeling that maybe on Friday they might be, but then, of course, the, the performance patterns changed. A few questions from the race members. Club George Willis asked, should Mercedes have brought Lewis in for softs under the safety car? Do they still play strategy too safe? I think I'll take that one and say they could have done. I don't think it, I think it was one of those ones that they could have gone either way, really, which is, I think, why they gave Lewis Hamilton that option. He lost a place to George Russell. Probably wouldn't have made a great deal of difference in the in the end, in the grand scheme of things. But ultimately, the two Mercedes drivers got past Valtteri Bottas, didn't they? So I don't think we can really complain about that strategy. They weren't going to do any better than what they did. Question from Oscar Robledo, who says, has Mercedes genuinely found some pace or were they flattered by the track and conditions today? Now, Mark, that's, I think, referring to the race pace. We've kind of seen this before, haven't we, for Mercedes, that they're a little bit struggling in in qualifying, but in race pace, they often settle into being kind of the third fastest or thereabouts. I think on, yeah, if you if you able, if the conditions are able to, the circumstances of a race are able to let you see the actual potential of every car, um, yeah, I think the Mercedes is still, yeah, it, it, it Vise or here it was Vi with the Alfa Romero's third fastest car, um, but there's no. I wouldn't say its performance in the race was any better than it had been in, in the the previous four races. It was had there not been a safety car, it would have finished you know miles behind. It was just the safety car that had brought it up you know relatively close. You know, similar Emily wasn't it with Mercedes probably the fourth fastest car in that race in the end but Alfa Romeo in that general neighborhood as well so yeah I, I don't think we saw a transformed performance pattern there Scott Simon T asks do you think Barcelona will be make or break for this Mercedes concept if they're still scratching their heads five races in with the technical minds and resources they have might it be time for a u-turn I think the upcoming Spanish Grand Prix and a return to the track where the old concept ran in testing is key. I think it will be very important to Mercedes deciding whether it has got its concept right or wrong. Mercedes F1 boss Toto Wolff hasn't completely ruled out a return to the older car specification, but that felt like it was much more Toto not wanting to absolutely rule something out on the off chance it is the route they have to go down. He said that the team is still committed to the current concept for now. Um, what Toto has acknowledged is that the team introduced a significant upgrade at the second test in Bahrain that minimised its side pods considerably. And this is where the Mercedes car design varies most from its rivals. Obviously, there are bound to be other elements of the concept that are unique, but this is the, the most obvious. Wolf said that it means the floor edges stick out much wider than everyone else's, and he says that gives it much more scope for possible instability. But he's adamant that the original version of the W13 with its more conventional side pods is much slower on paper. So when he was asked if there could be a scenario where Mercedes goes back to the current concept, he talked about that and said that he wants to give the benefit of the doubt to the engineering team. They believe that this is the route they need to go down. But he also acknowledged that Barcelona is going to be a point in time where they have to correlate what they've seen in February in the first test there with the old concept and gather more data. He keeps saying the same thing, gathering data, making experiments, use a nice phrase where he said it's physics, not mystics. But 
ultimately Wolf has hinted that if Mercedes doesn't believe its car design could be made to work, then it will abandon it. Uh, and like I said, it's not the case at the moment. It's currently being faithful to the current concept, but the significance of combing through the data gathered so far to understand why the car's porpoising so badly and how to get that under control is still absolutely key. There will eventually come a point where if Mercedes can't do that, then they will have to basically de determine that the concept isn't as good in reality as it is on paper. But that is still a very complex situation because until they actually understand why that is, they can't make that decision. We talked about this on a previous podcast. We've gone into that in a lot of detail, but it's a tricky situation for Mercedes to, to, to be in and every race it ticks by, I, I think, does just widen that door ever so slightly more to a potential experiment of going back to the old concept. Yeah, it does seem to be about the amount of floor exposed there is there and it flexing and moving around and a few other little problems it's causing. So that, that'll be the big question. Barcelona will be important. Mark, Simon T also asks, what is it about the Mercedes and switching the tyres on? Unless I'm mistaken, they've struggled a lot with this over the years and it's the same again with these new cars. Yeah, I mean, historically, they used to struggle with overheating, overheating of the rears. Um, and it was then in the, the, when, when they got into the hybrid era, the car was so superior that we, we, any sort of footy tyre traits were sort of, you know, you didn't really, weren't important. Um, and then it's, yeah, it's always been slightly unusual in how it used the tyres, it's true. And it, for example, traditionally, it, when compared to when it was uh, racing a competitive Ferrari in seventeen eighteen or a competitive Red Bull, um, it tended not to find as much time from them on the softest tires. So it's always hard to. It, it it it's just yeah. I mean, no team will understand it. You, you'd you'd need everybody's information. Um, in in terms of uh, suspension kinematics and you know the, the um, dynamic weight distribution, how it changes with the aero maps to 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 fully do a, a comparison and, and understand it. Um, so each team only understands their own car if, if they're lucky, and they can't fully understand everybody else's. So it, it's hard to answer that definitively. But you're right. Um, it, it 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 it's always been a little bit offset compared to the norm in how it uses the tyres. And and this one is a little bit too gentle on the tyres um, for for qualifying, and um, which can be a boon in the race. And um, we see uh, the opposite with this Ferrari. Um, for example, it seems to switch its tyres on very well, better than the Red Bull, certainly this weekend. Um, but it if the compounds a little bit soft it it can overwork the front the the uh, it, it, and that's what we saw in the last two races so um the mercedes is is like more like the red bull in that respect but but more so it, it it's it's gentler on the tires over um it, it it's more reluctant to to get them up to temperature over a single lap and um but is is relatively gentle on them uh, in a race. Yeah, and before we finish on Mercedes, we should, of course, mention that we ended up with George Russell finishing fifth ahead of Lewis Hamilton in that race. A little bit fortuitous with the, the, the safety car. Actually, it was only really 
in his battle with his teammate that the safety car made much of a difference for Russell because his, his pace compared to the, the cars behind was very, very good, even advanced in that stint. So, yeah, just had one of those days when the the two positions flips around. I'm sure there'll be somebody arguing that this just shows that, uh, that Lewis Hamilton's passed it and George Russell's better than him. But this is one of those ones where Russell struggled a bit in qualifying and had a little bit of a and a, a little bit of luck in the race but ultimately they uh, they ended up finishing together. Well more on the Miami Grand Prix in a moment but first it's time to check on the races Grid Rival League. Grid Rival is a fancy motorsport game that offers you the chance to pick a team of five drivers and one team but with the added challenge and opportunity of juggling the length of time they remain on your roster and how best to spend your budget. The race has its own league which you can join in order to become one of many many people who are currently beating me and Scott. So how's your team got on this week Scott? Uh, pretty solidly, um, I scored a, I scored eight hundred ninety six points this week. I've moved up to four hundred and fortieth position, which is not very impressive. But you know, I'll take a green arrow. Um, it, I, I think, I think it was solid. Uh, I think it would have been a very good week, but unfortunately, um, I was let down by the Haas duo uh, because I have a, I had Alonso Leclerc. Bottas and Red Bull were the other slots in my roster, and uh, I had Alonso as my star driver, so um, he he did he did okay for me. But obviously his penalties I think hurt. But it was really yeah, it was really the um, the late slumps for the for the Haas duo that that really cost me. We'll we'll talk about this in a bit more detail shortly. But Mick Schumacher falling out of a of a points position and and Kevin Magnussen falling back as well. So I think it would have been a very good week, but in the end it turned into sort of a just slightly above average. Yeah, I got 951 points, not too bad. I've still got race winner Max Verstappen, Kevin Magnussen, Carlos Sainz and Ferrari. My new signings were Fernando Alonso and for one race only Mick Schumacher. Those didn't work out so well in the end. I had Alonso as my double points talent driver, so his dual penalties that dropped him out of the points were not very helpful. Top of the races league overall now is SIR 44 with a total of 5,134 points and a tremendously strong lineup of Magnussen, Bottas, Verstappen, Sainz and Alonso plus Ferrari. We'll be continuing to track the progress over the year, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can join in. You'll find the link in the episode description for this podcast. Now, Scott, let's talk Valtteri Bottas. He was resoundingly fifth for most of the race, but after the safety car, he had a wide moment and dropped behind the two Mercedes drivers. What was his excuse for that? Yeah, I think he found the restart a bit tricky. Um, he had used his tyres pretty hard before that. And obviously we know that the restart, had uh, the safety car had been kind for for Russell in terms of being able to make his change, uh, change of tyres, rejoin, have a nice... Um, have a nice run, basically, at uh, Bottas and, and and Hamilton. So so Russell was absolutely on the offensive. Uh, Bottas knew that he was under pressure, and he basically just made a small mistake. He overshot the last corner only by a small amount, but it's obviously so dusty offline or dirty offline. People were complaining about the surface all weekend. That's the nature of the track. There's no grip out there. So Bottas was just pushing, pushing, pushing. I think he'd been a little bit on the ragged edge for a little bit before that. I, I don't think that was just how he was driving. I think that was in response to the situation. I think he knew that he had to really lean on it to stay ahead of the Mercedes. They were closing quickly. He went a bit too deep and that was pretty much it. He he felt he was unlucky. I don't think it was bad luck. I think it was a misjudgment and a, and a, and a mistake. 
But it's a mistake that's kind of understandable because in those circumstances, you, you really are pushing. He's got two faster cars bearing down on him. I completely understand why he'd want to stay in front of them as well. It's his old team. So I don't begrudge him that too much. But yeah, it's one of those where he's finished seventh. And it's a good result. It's just, it shows where Valtteri and Alfa Romeo are at the moment that they can be disappointed with a result like that and falling behind to Mercedes. But at the same time, Bottas needs to be doing a slightly better job there because there was a better result on the table. So I don't think everything Bottas does is perfect at the moment, but let's put it this way. We are a long, long, long way from the days of Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner. Exactly, yes. And yeah, you know, I watched a few laps of the restart before he had that off and he had a few little wide moments the pressure was telling, but Alfa Romeo felt they did have the third quickest car and probably without the safety car, he'd have held on to that position because every time the Mercedes drivers, Hamilton particularly, was closing in on him, the gap would then stabilise and it would ebb and flow. So I think he had it pretty well covered. Bottas has got 30 points so far this season, but most races there were reasons why he could have got a few more points. Not always his fault, but the retirement in, uh, in in Saudi Arabia and was unlucky in Imola. So that just shows how strong a season Alfa Romeo is having. Mark Esteban Ocon, he couldn't run in qualifying after hitting the wall at turn 14 and punching the suspension through the monocoque. So how did he come to finish eighth from the back? He did a lovely drive, actually. Um put on a set of hards, got them to last forever, um, a bit like George Russell. And he, was able, he, made, he made good progress during that time, but um, cementing the deal was the safety car, which allowed him, just like Russell, to, um, to get in and get a, um, a very time-cheap pit stop, and that um, just cemented his position. And then uh, his teammate, Alonso, was uh, um, penalised five seconds, and that put him behind him in the official results. So he ninth across the line and eighth official so, yeah, really, really good performance um, from the back of the grid. Yeah, Esteban Ocon said he was at about 50% after that uh, battering he took in that uh, in that crash. So he was actually very, very pleased that he could come away with a few points. I think he expected it to be very, very, very difficult, but one of those ones where, where it all, all came to him. I did, I did ask him where he was uh, where he was struggling in terms of, uh, of the after effects, and he said it was the knees mainly, but also the lower back. A little bit of bruising, so 51G impact for him. Good effort from Ocon to come back from that. Scott, Fernando Alonso, Mark's already alluded to this, very much in the wars during the race. Had a bit of contact with Hamilton on the first lap, eighth on the road, got a brace of penalties that shuffled him out of the points. So can you run through his catalogue of incidents? I can. I think we should start with the positives. He made a great start. Um, he actually, I, I, I believe him. This is a little bit of a Fernando Alonsoism where he... Uh, extols his own virtues basically did he make the greatest start in human history no but he was incredibly incredibly intelligent and he noticed something that nobody else could possibly have noticed with a fantastic piece of awareness on what he described as the um the slowest parade lap in history when the drivers are, are going around I think this time they were in um sports cars weren't they and he said that uh he basically took inspiration from from that lap as they were going through turn one um he said he had about 20 or 30 seconds to just survey the circuit and he noticed that on the the outside line effectively like what is the racing line and then a little bit wider into into the first corner was was looked really nicely rubbered in didn't look like there was much dirt or gravel on that so he basically sort of committed in his mind at the start that if the gap opened up he could really attack on the outside and that's that's exactly what he did uh, he, he had a little bit of contact with Hamilton as the track then bends round uh, to the left and while he didn't pass in that exact moment Lewis did 
seem to sort of then back off slightly as they come through the, the, the right-hander, probably just because the car's a little bit then offline and a little bit unsettled. And then Alonso swept around the outside. So that's a little bit cheeky, but he got away with that. Um, what was far more than cheeky was the misjudged move on, on, on Gasly. Alonso did take responsibility for that. He got a five-second penalty, uh, which... the So it was the first of the two penalties that ultimately dropped him from eighth to ninth in the first instance. He did take responsibility. He sought out. I, I, I watched him go over to, to Gasly. He apologised to Gasly in front of me. Um, but I actually think he feels that Gasly sort of took a slightly odd line into the first corner and invited an attack and then turned in at like normal. And the suggestion from Otmar Zafnau, the Al- Alpine team boss, was that if Gasly had driven a normal line into the corner, then Alonso would never have been tempted to overtake. But I think that's Fernando sort of apologising, being gracious because he's already been penalised, but secretly thinking that he wasn't actually in the wrong at all. Um, And then he had two leaving the track and gaining an advantage investigations. The second came to nothing, but the first one he was guilty. That was the second five-second penalty, which dropped into 11th out of the points. I actually think this might be a little bit harsh, but I'd be interested actually to hear your respective positions on it. Um, Basically, the penalty was because Alonso had gone off track at the turn 14 chicane and gaining obviously what the stewards felt was a lasting advantage. He, approaching the chicane, he was two seconds behind Bottas and half a second clear of Mick Schumacher. Having cut the chicane, Alonso went purple in sector two. Um, The gap to Bottas was cut to about 1.1 seconds and the gap to Schumacher rose but uh, rose to uh, 1.5 seconds. So in total, um, he's gained about a second to the car in front and, and, and behind, give or take. So it's clearly a, a, a pretty chunky gain. But as they come out of that, the, the, you know, the tight left-hander that then leads out leads down that penultimate uh, straight, he, he raised his hand, he, it, he backed off. You can see that because the lap time falls away. And he fell to about 1.7 seconds behind Bottas, while the gap to Schumacher dropped from 1.5 seconds to around 1.2. And the reason the gap to Schumacher didn't drop by as much as it should have, given how much Alonso backed off, was because I think Schumacher had had a slightly bad exit off the corner and then he came under attack from cars behind. So anyway, the point is, Alonso acknowledged it. He made a legitimate effort to give some time back. He sacrificed the vast majority of that time. The gap to Bottas, he didn't sacrifice around, sort of I guess, three-tenths of a second or something like that. And he's been given a five-second penalty for that. I haven't seen any evidence that there was anything else there that contributes to that. To me, that feels a little bit harsh. I'm guessing they're just going zero tolerance on any time gained at all by going off track. What do you two think? I guess that purple sector was what what did it for him. What do you think, Mark? Oh, I think he's been um, the victim of outrageous misfortune. Um, as has happened so many times before. I don't know how. I don't think he did anything particularly wrong. But yeah, um, setting set the purple probably uh, alerted everyone. A uh, big, big flashing purple on the screen. Uh, had it not been for that, they, they might have just not bothered looking. But he did. Uh, it, it's useful though, isn't it? Because uh, you know, Mark, Mark was uh, Mark was speaking slightly tongue in cheek. But it's a nice little addition to the catalogue of Alonso Woe in the opening races, isn't it? So he. By the time we roll around to Spain and he's in the press conference there, he's going to have another thing to talk about on Friday about how he's been absolutely superb this season and luck just isn't on his side. The thing is, he does have a bit of a point on, on some of these <laughs> things. He's still operating at a very He has very a ridiculously level. low number of championship points, doesn't he, this season, considering how... But I think he's almost got as many licence points this season now as he does championship points. 
Yeah, he's got he's got two points, hasn't he? That's his his sum total for for the year. And he ended up missing out on points by point one zero two. That's how much Lance Stroll beat him by in that virtual battle for tenth. So yeah, very unfortunate start to the season for Fernando Alonso. Mark. Alex Albon, he was pretty quick in practice, but Williams struggled massively to get the tyres in the window in qualifying, so he was down in 18th on the grid. He ended up 9th after benefiting from Alonso's double penalty and also some late incidents. We've got a question from Oscar Robledo, who asks, given that Alex Albon has scored points twice in the last three races, are we seeing the revival of Williams' fortunes? No, I don't think so. I think we're seeing... um a very high level of performance from Alex and um, he's, he's, he's pulling results out that um, probably flatter the car and uh, really yeah, Williams is uh, for me one of the one of the most disappointing uh, teams of the season um, given the progress that they were they were making and the clean um, the clean sheet that the new regulations represented I thought we might see something a bit more sort of um, occasional mid-grid from them, but they, I mean, he he can pull a lap out and you know just about get it into Q2, and from that position he can sometimes get in the lower points. But I, for me, they're very much Albon performances rather than Williams performances. He's looking very very assured and confident and in control this year. He actually looks like quite a quite a different person in a way to what he was at Red Bull. And it's great to see because we all know how good he can be. And I wasn't certain whether he'd start to fulfill that potential this year. And he really has done. And Williams have got a very fine driver on their hands now because of that. He actually reckoned that this weekend, the performance of the Williams was a chunk better than it had been in Australia. So this was a better weekend and rewarded with that extra point to take it to two points. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. 
Well, Scott, let's talk Mick Schumacher. The Haas driver was in the mix for his first points finish at last, but he had a late clash with his friend and mentor, Sebastian Vettel. What did you make of it? And could this be a time for Mick Schumacher's sympathy corner for the first time? Yeah, I think so. Um, I talked on the uh, post-Imola podcast about how Schumacher was struggling up against Magnussen and this was his first real test and he he, he just wasn't passing it. But in the build-up to this race, Team Boskin to Steiner said that Schumacher had to be perfect to score points in such a competitive midfield and that his first top 10 was a hurdle that needed to be cleared. The implication being that the lack of a points finish might be weighing on Mick a little bit and he just needs to get that monkey off his back. But he came close to doing exactly that. This was comfortably his best performance of the season and I think by extension the most impressive drive of a short F1 career, at least until the start of lap 54, so, so close to the end when he'd been defending from, uh, I think it was an attack from Ocon, wasn't it, into the last corner. He got a little bit of a, got a, little bit of a, of a slide. That allowed Vettel to to dive past. Mick then tucked in right behind him, going down the start, finish straight, and then launched a fairly aggressive move into the first corner. He, he did come from a, a, a little bit behind, but Vettel clearly didn't expect it or, or see him, turned in for the, to, to the apex, and Mick clattered into him on the right-hand side. Quite a violent impact. Vettel's car briefly um, airborne, um, and he retired. Schumacher limped back to the pits. Uh, if losing a first ever points finish wasn't enough, to do it by colliding with a long-time family friend and mentor who he's become so close to in recent years clearly exacerbated the pain. You could hear it in Mick's voice. He he almost didn't want to protest because I think he knew instantly who he'd uh, who he'd who who he'd hit. But watching the the replay back a few times just after it happened, the more I watched it, the more I became convinced that Mick hadn't actually been too ambitious with, with with that move. I, I thought it was a legitimate move to make. I thought he did quite a good job in terms of the positioning of the car. He did seem that he was getting the car slowed down enough. He did get n- nicely alongside Vettel without being out of control. But it's just one of those things that by the time they're at that point of contact, Mick's fully committed on the inside, fully loaded up, can't slow the car down anymore. Sebastian's already committed to his entry point for the corner and he's heading for the apex. So, he could turn out of it, but I don't think he's seen Mick or expecting him. So in the end, I kind of thought, actually, I think this is going to get struck off as a racing incident. And that's exactly what happened. I think um, really the, um, I don't really think the stewards could have come to another uh, conclusion, especially with the way they've um, redone the the racing rules guideline for this year. The argument would have been that Mick should have been afforded space on, on the inside, but yeah, just a, just a gut wrenching, uh, way for, for for Mick to miss out on what was absolutely was surely going to be a first points finish in Formula One. Yeah, he ended up fifteenth in the end. Schumacher one place better off than Kevin Magnussen, who had a mixed weekend. He had radio problems in Q one and ended up just going out and driving around and couldn't quite make it through to Q two. And actually had quite a good first part of the race. Got past Ricardo and Sonoda, then got team ordered past Schumacher briefly, but that stop put him in amongst Aston Martins, and it all got a little bit messy and then he decided he was going to take tyres at the uh, safety car and that didn't make things easy for him and he ended up having a collision with Stroll getting a penalty and 16th very action-packed for Magnus. yeah well just Haas in general at the end my grid rival team thanks them <laughs> exactly they're just there to spite you let's talk Aston Martin Mark Vettel lost a points finish to that incident but teammate Lance Stroll did grab 10th place after the Alonso penalties that exciting virtual finish I mentioned, of course, 
difficult for Aston Martin because they qualified by their standards relatively well with Lance Stroll getting to Q3 and Vettel almost getting there with that late Q2 lap, made a small mistake and didn't get through. But they had to start from the pits because they had the fuel to cool. You can only be within, you have to be within 10 degrees C of the ambient temperature and their fuel was just too cool. And of course, cool fuel, denser, more power, etc. So they had to let it warm up a little bit before joining. But do you think there's any signs of Aston Martin getting better given that they were maybe fractionally better than they normally were this weekend? Yeah, I mean, aside from the fuel cooling issue, they were probably, it's probably the most competitive they've been. Lance got through to Q3 on merit, um, and he did he did a very decent race from the, the pit lane to, to get those, to get, well, to get that point. Um, it's it's okay through the slow corners. It's, um, they're, they're running, they're having to run it pretty high. So it's, it's um, you know, it's, I think if you took this car to Barcelona, it would be a disaster. But um, they've got a big upgrade coming to Barcelona, so maybe it won't be. Um, yeah, it, I think probably it was just tra- track characteristics, but it was probably its um, least uncompetitive showing this year. That's as generous as you can be, but they'll be hoping to have a fresh start with that upgrade that you mentioned. Well, Scott, let's move on to McLaren. They didn't have the best weekend, struggled a bit on a circuit with more slower corners, perhaps wasn't a surprise. Daniel Ricciardo ended up dropping from 11th to 13th after he got a five-second penalty for gaining an advantage by leaving the track. Incidentally, after the race, he had no idea what that was for, said he was going to go and have a look. Amusingly, he said he didn't really mind because dropping from 11th to 13th doesn't matter, but of course he could have got a point with the subsequent Alonso penalty had he stayed there. Landon Norris ended up with three wheels on his wagon after being hit by Pierre Gasly. So what did you make of that incident? Yeah, that was, um, well, initially it looked like Gasly had just been a little bit clumsy after going off track, rejoining, a couple of cars go past and then just sort of meandered into Norris as as Norris was was diving past on the left-hand side. But actually... I've got to give Gasly the benefit of the doubt. He was the one behind the wheel. He's he's best placed to to really describe what was going on. He'd he he'd been uh, his car had been assaulted by by Alonso, and Gasly said that had damaged the, the 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 right rear. And he'd continued to see if he could um, get away with it, basically, and and, and just crack on. Um, but he 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 did notice um, he did notice it make a difference and. Then on the lap in question with the incident with Norris, uh, going at the end of that first sector as you come through those sort of fast sweeps, he'd gone onto the runoff a couple of times. Something was clearly up with a handle, and then he just said he was, you know, looking in his mirrors, trying to keep out of the way of all the other cars. Um, he sort of suggested that he was really he was struggling to keep it right, and then obviously like Norris comes by super quickly, and, and there's just a really big Im- impact. So, uh, barring any new information to what I have now kind of giving Gasly the benefit of the doubt and saying it's just really unlucky not obviously Norris is is helpless there I don't really think I don't really think he he could realistically have expected Gasly to keep moving over to the left I don't, don't think there was really any outward sign or body language from the car that suggested that it was just sort of like constantly drifting across and maybe there was a bit more space Norris could have moved into but he said you know what am I meant to do just drive up next to the wall for no reason he he, he didn't think there was any any justification for, for giving any more space than he did so yeah it just uh, it com- compounded what uh, turned into a difficult race for him because he'd uh, I think 
got himself into a little bit of traffic and a DRS train and was just struggling to make progress again after a slightly difficult first in. And I think a slightly early stop compared to, 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 to some of the others. So I think he just ended up in a position where there were a couple of points on offer for, for McLaren and Norris, but it, it would have been hard work to even just to, to, to get into the into the top 10 properly. So one of those things where it's a big hit, quite a dramatic incident, um, but ultimately McLaren didn't really lose a great deal in that race because they just weren't very competitive. Yeah, he stopped on lap 16 and ended up stuck behind Ocon, who was uh, running along first stint. So that made things a little bit more difficult for Gasly. Best Alpha Tauri qualifying performance of the season, though, for him. Seventh, I think he pulled out a lap that's something like six tenths faster than anything he'd done at the end of, of Q3. So he's pretty happy with that. And yeah, he was battling on, would have picked up a, a minor result, I think. But difficult race for him. But then again, Yuki Tsunoda, his teammate, had a very difficult race uh, as well. He ended up down in 12th place, just dropped back at the start, just struggling with the tyres. Just a very, very difficult afternoon. Yeah, um, I would like to just because I've noticed it while checking a couple of things on the um, on on the result sheet. I'd like to amend slightly something I'd said about Alonso and being unlucky because I just felt you know he giving up three temps ultimately felt like it was quite harsh. Actually, having a look at what three temps gave him after the original five second penalty was applied, it, do, it does it does make a difference. It does make a difference to his results. So I think. I'm not sure that really played into it, but um, I'd have to go and look at the stewards' verdict properly. But just looking at that, you kind of in the in the moment you think, ah, oh, well, what's you know what difference does three three temps make? But then actually looking at the result sheet, it's the difference between one or two places for for for, for Alonso. So I think it's actually fair to throw the book at someone. That is that is exactly what that rule is there to do, isn't it? Design it's to stop people gaining a lasting advantage. And if you've got a five second time penalty and you sneak inside one or two positions by three tenths of a second within that five second time penalty, I think it's fine for to to to, to be given another one. Haven't we mentioned Nicholas Latifi finished fourteenth, carrying a little bit of weight in that car because he's got quite a few repaired parts on it. Probably his best qualifying performance of the season to be not far off. Alban Joe Guan Yu retired early on with a water pump problem. First time he hasn't made Q2, so not the best weekend for him. But inevitably, we've had quite a few questions about the, the circuit and the events. So I think probably the best thing to do is I'll read out some of the questions and comments we've had, and then maybe we can have a chat that addresses all of it. Sander Van Hulten said, is F1 becoming too much show and not so much about the racing? I felt like the whole Miami GP was hyped up and had so many cringeworthy moments post-race. The interviews, police escorts, football helmets. This was all show, whereas three quarters of the race had hardly anything happening. Sean Rooney said, do you feel this was a weekend where F1 lent too heavily into the spectacle in the way that distracted from the race? Daniel Booth said, so Liberty Media are obviously doing well in terms of boosting the popularity of the sport. But what on earth was this joke of an event? Everyone jokes about Caesar's Palace car park track, but as a TV viewer, this was no different. A mostly dull race, save for a crash and a couple of DRS overtakes. The fake marina just proves that Monaco, for all its faults, cannot be replicated or replaced for its genuine glitz and glamour. The celebrities were there for some reason the post-race interview was conducted by someone who had definitely never seen a car race never mind f1 before 
And this farce of a podium ceremony. Words escape me. F1 should be better than this. I think Daniel wasn't keen on this race. That's the impression I get. And finally, Chris Parrott says, wow, what a terrible race. The track surface was appalling. There was no overtaking. And what action there was was ruined by some unusually situated pleasure boats. Is the Miami Grand Prix 2022 F1's biggest lesson in waiting until the race is over before judging the event? Well, Mark, let's start with you. Lots of different perspectives to get into there show over substance do you think there's anything to that well i'd make the the distinction between how it's been um presented on tv and the peripheral stuff that's going on around it when you're there and work and you don't necessarily um get exposed to that yeah i mean it's something that's going on in the background while you 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 know you, you're doing your normal work so um for me, it felt like um, a, a place with a great, an event with a great buzz. Um, and it was certainly the busiest paddock I've ever been in, uh, and you, you couldn't, you just couldn't get moved in the in the paddock. It was wall to wall with with guests and celebrities and stuff like that. But I didn't. It doesn't bother me at all. But each to their own. And if it was presented in a way that um, perhaps got in the way of um, people's enjoyment of the, the the race itself well yeah, I guess that's, that's, uh, that's a fair viewpoint but it's not it's not something I felt um, as for the post race interviews it was as Willie T ribs of course he's seen a race he was 1977 British Formula Ford junior champion um, he's, he's tested Brabham F1 car and I you know he's um, he's not a professional uh, broadcaster but I, yeah i thought he was fine and I, I i find it hard to take offense really <laughs> i thought thought it was a i thought it was a great event i must admit when i was reading that i was thinking who did those interviews because i didn't see them because i was off down to find drivers i didn't realize it was willie t ribs yeah he was a, a very very good driver in his time but scott it wasn't a stunning circuit was it but it, it was a good event i don't think the race was brilliant but i don't think the race was quite as terrible as been made out but then again maybe that's because i watch a race in a slightly different way to some because i'm always tracking lap times and that kind of thing so perhaps i'm not the best judge of it what did you make of it i, I thought the race was okay I, I thought it was pretty much middle of the road um i've, I've seen worse grand prix i've seen a lot better grand prix certainly um there's definitely a disconnect when you're not on site because i, I just i said this in the build-up to the, i wrote a piece in the build-up to the grand prix feeling like this race just didn't feel like it was that we weren't the target audience. And to be honest, the people listening to this podcast probably weren't the target audience either. And the people that are traditional fans, just they, 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 they're not the target audience because some, a race like this is all almost entirely about the event around it. And I don't think all 23 races should be the same. But I do think all 23 races should have the sporting competition side at their heart. And events like this, I think, go dangerously close to getting that balance wrong. But that's a different discussion because we could be here for another hour or so if we get into this too much. But I guess my point would be that I do sympathise certainly with the people that watch this on television because I do think it was an inferior product watching it on television versus being on site. That that was the point. It was meant to be a massive spectacle. It was, it was a festival-like atmosphere. I've never seen the paddock like it everyone who went down to the grid said that they've not seen a, a starting grid like it as well 
the track's actually quite good. I, I don't think the track's bad. There are a couple of parts that uh, split opinion, the, the really slow section and the tight chicane, which actually grew on me as the weekend went on. I, I found it less offensive by the time of the Grand Prix. Certainly quite a tricky sequence of corners. Um, the surface wasn't as bad as it had been on Friday and Saturday. They were, we were really worried that we weren't going to see any racing at all because it was it was so bad offline on Friday and Saturday. But that seemed to improve on Sunday as well. So I think there were, were actually a few positives to take away from it. It wasn't stellar, but you know, as a race, there was a pass for the lead in the opening opening few laps. Um, the lead battle was not good. It definitely wasn't. Uh, but I don't think the track can be blamed for the fastest car making its way to the front, especially because the profiles of the performance profiles of the two cars, once that Red Bull gets in front, it's very hard to pass because it's very fast in the straight line. And we all, but we all be, but we did have a quite interesting midfield fight after that. Bottas keeping the Mercedes at bay, especially Lewis Hamilton, um, for the majority of the stint, quite a fun fight for the lower points positions. You know, Grand Prix is about more than the, the just just the lead battle. So. I thought there was enough going on for it to be okay. It wasn't the most captivating Grand Prix, but it wasn't as bad as the absolute worst-case scenario that people seem to be latching onto. There's probably a little bit of a backlash to F1 telling everyone how brilliant this event is and everyone talk up, talking about how great it is and probably people like us being here saying it's a, it's a wonderful event because that's not great for everybody watching on television. So I do understand some of that pushback. But there, there will be... Uh, there'll be worse Grand Prix this year, no doubt. That's... That's a reasonably, reasonably standard Grand Prix, I would say. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was that. I don't think it was particularly offensive, but I would agree that it didn't live up to the hype. Uh, that was my big concern pretty weekend. I, I didn't see how the Grand Prix could live up to the everything that was being promised. How, how could it? You would need one of the best events of the season, if not the best Grand Prix of the season, to to really live up to how much this was being crammed down everybody's throat about how brilliant it is. And like I said, I bet that would be much much harder to take if you were off site and you're being constantly told how brilliant this thing that you can't be at is yeah i think there was a, a little bit of that and maybe that's something f1 can learn from for when we go to las vegas next year although i suspect a very very similar thing will happen but one thing that f1 can't be faulted on is they have tried to build up a big event it is really trying to capitalize on that growth of interest in the usa and that's, that's good for everyone, ultimately. So overall, I think a, a net positive. But yeah, not perhaps the, the, the greatest events for those watching on television at home. But it's, it's a broad church, 23 races on the calendar. So there should be space for multiple different kinds of events. And I'm sure the track will develop over time and, uh, and should bed in a little bit better well thanks very much scott mitchell and mark hughes for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphenas there's huge amounts to read there about the miami grand prix and the latest goings on in the world of formula one check out our sister podcasts including the race indycar podcast MotoGP podcast got formula e podcast as well and if video is your thing check out our youtube channel we're now going to turn our attention to the two-week gap before spain but stay with us on the race f1 podcast for everything you need to know from the world of formula one the athletic